Okay, I'm walking through Shoreditch in central London towards the office of my next guest, Sajata Bhartia, the Chief Operations Officer at Monzo. Monzo burst onto the scene in 2015 and quickly became the largest digital bank in the UK. Sajata joined the team in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, and today they have over 8 million customers and growing. We will talk about her role in Monzo in detail in this interview, but I'm also wowed about the fact that she spent 16 years at her previous company, American Express. In an era where everyone seems to job hop, what does it look like to rise through a company of that size over a decade and a half? Prior to joining American Express, Sajata was a strategy consultant at Bain & Company in London, and she did her time at Goldman Sachs and Ernst & Young. She received her MBA in finance from the Wharton School of Business, and to me, she's an all-round executive superstar. I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from her journey, and I'm really excited by this one. Let me know what you think by joining the Executive Realness community on the Stackworld app. You'll find the link in the show notes, as well as access to our future live podcast events. Okay, I'm here. I've arrived. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to start with a question about when did you first understand the concept of money? At what age were you when you started to think there is this thing in the world called money and it um, can get me things? Quite young, actually, mostly because there was this annual card game. I come from a big Indian crazy family and we would have an annual card game on Thanksgiving and on Diwali called Teen Pati, which was played with quarters. And you put a sheet out in the middle of the floor and everybody starts betting and it's effectively gambling, but like very Mickey Mouse gambling. And and so it was like a really fun thing that was like the center of our lives in terms of a family event. But we would then talk about the kids, like what we're going to use that money to buy. So pretty early. Were you quite aggressive with it? No, I was really, I really liked doing, I'm not sure why, I was stacking the money. I liked organizing it more than winning it or spending it. So I don't know what that says about my <laughs> I personality. Exactly I liked feeling. the feeling of all these little coins stacking and it was very strange. And you, you grew up in Boston? Yeah, I grew up in Boston. What was that like for you as a young Indian girl? Oh, it was really great, actually. I I grew up in a very strange, quirky town. It was like the birthplace of the American Revolution where the first shots were fired. So the irony of me marrying a British person and moving to England is quite entertaining because I spent every year celebrating the revolution and the kicking out of the British from the country. But we had a big, robust family. I used to spend my summers in Bombay. I, I spent the rest of my year in Boston. And there was just always people around that really supported me. There was always someone to turn to, people to both entertain you and give you good advice. And when you were younger, you wanted to be a financial journalist. Yeah. What was it about media and, and the world of money and media that made you think that was a viable career path for you? I think it was mostly that I liked stories and I've always liked writing and I liked reading things. But what I loved about when I was younger, I came across a copy of Fortune magazine and there was some story they were telling about the rise and fall of a company and just the epicness of it really captured my imagination. And I loved the way they told those stories in a way that was very tangible to me, that you could build something. And I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur and there was always business going on in my house somewhere. With the basement, we would get paid to package things for my dad's company to send out. We would go on buying trips with him. So I understood what commerce was and I just loved this idea of the narrative around it. Did you ever feel a pressure when you were younger to also go into the world of business or 
entrepreneurship as opposed to the creative side of it? No, actually, I was pretty clear I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. The irony of me working in a startup now is is quite entertaining, but because I had no rose-colored glasses about it. I knew what that life was, that you never shut off, that you're literally like packing. We would pack the little packets of things that had to get sent out and be on the phone at the other end of customer issues and be on all day long. So I saw how hard the hustle was and how rewarding it was, but I never had any kind of rose-tinted glasses about what that life was. So what did you do after schooling and what was the first thing that kind of led you on your career path? So I went to school to study finance. So I did actually enjoy the topic of business. My sister is a scientist. So I also I think you sometimes compliment each other. So I went to the other end of where she was going. And I really enjoyed it. I took a pretty rigorous course load, also decided that I wanted to learn some discipline and some skills, so I also studied accounting. And then when I was leaving university, I had an offer to do what I thought I was going to do, which is move to New York and be an investment banker. And I had this offer all lined up and I was going to go to New York, but I'd also done some accountancy interviews, um, almost for practice in that process, and had a bunch of offers there. And somewhere along the line, got interested in the idea of learning the discipline of business before I went off to be on Wall Street. The plan was always to go do that. But ulti- but early on, I, I thought, actually, I should get some of my fundamental sound. So I ended up joining an accountancy firm. What kind of cultural inspirations were there for you at the time? Because you grew up in Boston. I just got back from Boston. It's such a business city yeah, and v- very professional and education. And I was recently watching Ali McBeal again yeah, and was like, oh, wow. Show. Yeah. yeah. And, and then one, wanting to work on Wall Street. What was influencing you? What were you reading, watching? I watched some crazy movie called Baby Boom. I remember that that movie. movie. Of course I I do. I love that movie and this idea of this woman in the boardroom, like in this man's world, like making things happen. And obviously then she has like a meltdown and goes off and has a baby (laughs) and then comes back and there's like an entrepreneur and runs her business. I found that super inspiring. So I think it was things like that, that I could just see this visual of action and motion and making great decisions and driving impact. And that was really what got me excited. It's so true because I grew up watching Working Girl as well. Great movie also, yeah. And it's a niche movie, but another movie called Boomerang, which was about a black advertising agency. Love that movie. And it's really interesting because the image, exactly like you said that, there is this woman, she's going into the boardroom making decisions. I think that these have a profound effect on us growing up. We talk a lot about role modeling in the workplace, but actually media and culture and film and TV play a huge role in that too. I think so. My dad is a feminist and so is my mom. And so my mom was, she's the first woman to get her MBA in India. So she's this really interesting woman that went to college at 15, had her first master's at 19. In At that time in, in that world, she didn't get married until she was 30, which was unheard of and had a love marriage. So all of those things were like bucking the trend. And so she was very much like a why not? And she met my dad in her MBA program. And then he was this barrier breaker in that when he moved to the US, he was an engineer and then he became an, a business person. He was like the first Indian partner at KPMG that they'd ever had. And actually when they hired him, he only got in because the guy he'd been tutoring at school 
referred him in and they tried to give him like accent lessons and all these other things. So I just had really impressive role models that didn't have any barriers in their mind, but they both were really committed to me having a career. So the conversations at the dinner table were, what are you going to do? What kind of impact are you going to have in the world? And that really shaped you because at some point you have this real sense of responsibility, but also this idea of like, why not? So let me rewind a, a moment. So when you graduated, what happened next? So I took that accounting offer. I was like, you know what? I could go to New York and I'll be at the bottom of the totem pole and I'll be training or whatever. Or somehow I got enamored with the idea that with the accounting degree, early on you got to have some leadership experience. So early on you start to manage people and um, I could cover lots of different industries. So I decided to take that offer and then I was terrible at it. And so it was really interesting because I was like their top recruit and they brought me in and they'd offered me a consulting job and an accounting job and all this fanfare. And then I just really sucked at it. And How so? Like I just would drag myself into work every day and the days would be endless. And I would, it was mind numbing for me. And the, the work you do as a first year staff accountant isn't hard. But so it you was, didn't suck at it. You just weren't motivated by it. You weren't excited by it. Objectively, I was terrible at it because maybe that's why. Like I was so bored that I couldn't, I didn't have the discipline to actually get myself together to be able to power through. So I would sit there. I would fall asleep in the office. After having a perfectly good night's sleep, I would get there and just fall asleep at my desk. And I remember these people and these teams would look at me and be like, what is happening with that girl? And I also was, I was a little bit of a square peg in a round hole in that it wasn't a very diverse company. Um, the people that were there hadn't been to the same schools I'd been to. So like I didn't speak the language. I wasn't code switching in the right way in those teams. It was a very traditional financial services set of clients that I had early on. And so I just was terrible. And I think they couldn't figure out why. And I couldn't really figure out why, but I was fairly miserable. And what changed it was that I ended up getting randomly assigned to like some healthcare clients and healthcare was like the forgotten child of the company, although it was like really revenue generating. It was a really quirky group of people. The partners were quirky. The, everybody in there was just, they were very impact oriented and health oriented because they were working in hospitals and cared about that. And my first gig there was with a woman leader and the other guy in the team was quadriplegic and was like working his way through it. And so it was just a different group of people. And I just felt like I'd found my tribe. And because they were always understaffed, instead of just doing like the bottom of the chain stuff, they were like, can you just take these other things on that, that were quite challenging? And I had to go figure it out. And something kicked in there where like I had to start using my brain in a different way. And I could figure out how what I was doing laddered up to the overall project. And I found my feet slowly. What was the biggest thing that you learned from that part of your career? Part of it was that the tribe you're in, so you can be the best person you want to be, but if you're not in the place that fits you and you're not with the right tribe and you're not doing the work that, that suits you, even the best person can be terrible or vice versa. Is this something that you've taken on when you are hiring and looking at where people should exist in the company now? Yeah, less so in hiring, more in developing, which is that I think oftentimes people think about leading in a very binary way. You're either great at something or you're not great at something. And I think I spend more of my time trying to understand what are these people's superpowers and what are the conditions to help them be successful and help them understand that and try to lean into it versus you have to presume positive intent. Most people come to work really wanting to do a good job. And usually you've hired them because they have the capability to do a good job. So if there's a disconnect on why they're not working well, there's usually a reason. And oftentimes, sometimes it's personal and it's got something, nothing to do with what's happening at work. Sometimes it's what's happening 
it's the context they're operating in or the role that they're in or their understanding of what they're meant to be doing. And all of those things need to line up for, for most people to be successful. How do you begin a conversation around that development process? So you see someone not necessarily performing to the ability that you think they're capable of. What is the first conversation that you have with that team member? Depends on how well I know them and how hard you can go in on it. But the questions that I'm really trying to get to are, what are the times that you've been most successful? Describe that to me. Where have you had the most joy? And that's usually the starting point because you can start to dissect what were the conditions of that allowed for that to exist. I do ask questions around like, how are you more generally? Because I don't want to dive into trying to figure out context if there's something more, more broad that I'm unaware of. And then I really try to dive into what is your understanding of what this role is and what good looks like. And often that's where the disconnect is. Tell me about your time with American Express and how you came to join the company. So I was at Bain & Company. So I'd done every service industry. I'd been at ENY doing the accounting thing. I had been an investment banker. I then had been a strategy consultant. But I knew that I always wanted to run something. I was really frustrated with the idea of being an advisor. I'd had all this wonderful training, but I wanted to join a company. So I was quite deliberate about it, as you would be as a consultant. So I made a list of the kind of companies I wanted to join, and I had a bunch of criteria. And one of them was around candidly diversity. So I wanted to be at a place where I didn't feel like I was going to hit a glass ceiling because A, I was American, and B, I was a woman, and three, I was a person of color. And One second. I just want to rewind on that because most people take jobs and do not do a strategic plan <laughs> they on slides. <laughs> Can we just rewind a second? So you were thinking that you wanted to make a move. You're at Bain. Yeah. Talk about that process. This is incredible advice for anyone who's thinking about how to strategize their next career move. What did you do? So I said, okay, I'm in the UK for now. And I looked at like categories of industries that I was interested in and not interested in. And luckily in the three years I'd been at Bain, I'd worked in a wide range of them. So I knew I didn't really want to work in B2B. I wanted to work in something a bit more consumer oriented. I knew that I wanted to work at a certain level of scale to be able to have progression and drive impact. And then I wanted to work at a brand that resonated for me. So something that was meaningful. And so that was the, the first criteria. And so you filter that out. And then I really looked at three things. One was just culture. Would I be a fit generally? Because like I said, I learned that lesson earlier on. You got to find your tribe to be able to create the conditions of success. The second was this idea of a value for diversity. So did I think that, and I candidly at the time, this was a long time ago, it was more than 20 years ago, I was looking at American companies where my accent wouldn't already make people roll their eyes and where I thought there at the time they were a bit more advanced in terms of um, women and people of color particularly my color. And then the third part about that was I looked for companies where I know about myself that I need change and stimulation. And so I looked for companies where people moved around. Um, so not growing in silos, but actually had diverse careers. Um, and American Express was actually the top of the list. And it was, they had a black CEO. So there was already something quite interesting going on there and rare for a Fortune 50 company. They had a lot of people that have moved through most parts of the organization, including his career, when you follow that path, were doing really interesting things. And it was a brand that I like I had an Amex card in my wallet since I was like 17. So there was it hit all those things. And so I picked the company as top of my list. And then it's the exact opposite way to do a job search, but I randomly called somebody that worked there and they had an opening and three weeks later I had an offer. <laughs> 
that isn't random. You'd been so clear yeah. about what you wanted that when the time was right, you, it's, it makes it easy to, to take the jump. Tell me about your first year at American Express and what that was like. Because you were there for 16, 16 years, years yeah. which is almost unheard of in career paths today. I'd love you to take us back to year one and then how you developed yourself as a leader over those 16 years. I joined in the strategy team. So it was like a really beautiful way to join a big company in that I was a strategy consultant. There was a, a really well-known team within that world where they specialize in taking strategy consultants mostly from the big three, um, having them come do internal consulting work for two years and, and seeing lots of the company and then parachuting into a part of the business to be able to do a job. So that's really cool because it wasn't like a huge shift in terms of the type of work you were doing, which is a really nice like easing exactly into the company. Exactly. So I was like, okay, I know how to do this work. This allows me to get context for the company, build my relationships, get a bird's eye view of how this really big behemoth fits together rather than joining in some random place and trying to figure out where I was. And I could contribute from day one while learning. And for me, that's every job move I've ever had has been some version of weighing up impact versus learning and making sure that those are um, relatively balanced so that it's not like a net pull or just a net give. And I think that's just generally a good way to think about any new job. So I joined that and I did a whistle stop. I think in the first year I did six different projects in New York and Singapore and London and Malaysia. Like I just went all over the world with the company and did anything that came my way and learned a ton. Like the learning curve was vertical in terms of understanding the company and building the relationships. But it set me in really good stead. Within a year, I knew how all the pieces fit together. I touched a lot of different things. I really focused on making sure that I did excellent work and that I had built really strong relationships in every single project. And as a result, one year in, I had a lot of pull from people asking me if I wanted to join their teams, which is great. That's such an interesting thing because it's really difficult to build relationships in a company if you are siloed, as yeah. you said, and you're not working across multiple projects. Whereas one of the things I've noticed in my career is nothing binds people together more than delivering on a project. Yeah. Like when you are all creating something together or there's a collective experience and, and you make something, that's one of the most powerful ways to build a relationship with people. How would you say that you decided the roles that you would play within those teams who were you in that team were you the thinker were you the leader were you the peppy person I think in general anyone that knows me knows that I move to where the gap is so I don't know that I ever play a single role so I, I don't know if I do it deliberately or intuitively I look at where the team is and see what role I need to play to make that team successful and just go to that not to be inauthentic but I just think this is the thing that's needed so I will go do that so um, adaptable yeah, very much. And what I what doesn't change is I do really focus on relationships. My husband and I joke, he's work here, play here. For me, work and play are the same thing. So I'm always engaging and building relationships while I'm at work. That's how I drive enjoyment. So I'm deeply curious about the people around me and both the personal but also the business context they operate in. And that helps me learn. And I think when people know you're curious about the context for their goals and what they're doing and that you care about that and you view the success as the success of the team, it very quickly allows you to build trust. Summarize your top tips on relationship building and network building. 
I think the first thing is genuinely be curious. So don't think of networking as this tick the box exercise. Particularly, I don't want to make this too gendered, but women I know in general or the ones that I've talked to have always said that they find networking daunting. And they think of it as like this gross thing that you have to do to be able to get ahead. And I really don't think of it that way. I think of it as leadership because actually if you want to be a good team member and you want to be a good leader, you need to understand the context you're operating within. And everybody is always craving context. It doesn't matter how small or how big a company you're in. Everybody's trying to understand what's going on around them because it helps them be better at their job. So I always think the first thing is make sure you have some value to add in any conversation and be genuinely curious about what somebody else is doing. And that is a win. And then there's always going to be make sure you're contributing so that they're learning while they're talking to you and that you know that you're learning too and focus on authentic connection. But in every version of that, it's not because you want to network yourself. It's because actually that's how you help your teams be more impactful. That's how you, how you help the business be more impactful. So it has to be a priority. Talk to me about your second act at Amex. So I did the strategy team. I had two children at some point in there. So I had two maternity leaves. And I took, I always tell people deliberately, I took nine months off both mm. times. So I wasn't like one of those 12-week in and out people. Baby um, boom style. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a very formative job in between baby number one and baby number two. So um, after I'd rolled out of the strategy team, I was asked to be the chief of staff to someone very senior in the company. And I didn't want to do that job. And a theme in my career is that I always said no when a job came my way, which is not good advice. But I always was like, no, it doesn't seem right for this reason. And then I you know, would end up reconsidering. In this case, I was asked to be a chief of staff. And I thought, oh, this is going to be the kiss of death. I'm already an ex-strategy consultant. Now I've been in the internal strategy team. Now I'm going to be this like drone bag carrier for this senior executive. And nobody's ever going to trust me to run anything because all I'll show is that I'm like a thinker and an orchestrator. And so I was concerned about that. And I was on my maternity leave and and I talked to, I always consulted with people that I really trusted and I had a lot of great mentors. And a couple of them were like, you're crazy. Go have the conversation. This is like one of the most senior people in the company. He's probably going to be the next CEO. Just use the opportunity to talk to him. So I was on maternity leave. I flew to New York for 24 hours and met with this guy. And, and he said, I hear you don't want this job. And I said, yeah, I don't. <laughs> And he said, why? And I said, look, I want to be a general manager, and I just don't think that I'm going to add that much more value, and I'm not sure what I'll learn, and this doesn't seem like the right path. And he said, okay, if you want to be a general manager, this is the job to do because you'll learn from me, and I'm a general manager, and you're almost going to learn by osmosis how to do this job, and I've done this job once before. And I was like, okay, but what's the white space? And I, I have a young baby. I can't travel 70%, 5% of the time around the world with you. It doesn't seem to make sense. And he's okay. But if you can travel 25% of the time, we can make it work. And this is the kind of white space where I think you can make impact. So just let me know. So I came back home and I was like, I'm just going to do it. And then I'll see what happens and I'll make it work. And so I took the leap and it was the best decision I ever made because I, it was like boot camp. And I learned leadership boot camp. I learned not just how he led, and he was a really inspiring leader, but how his whole leadership team led. And I got to pick and choose. It was almost like being in the store where you're like, I like that. I don't like that behavior. I think this is great. I don't think that's great. And the time period for that role was like boom, bust, and boom again. Everything was go. Then we hit the global financial crisis. And I was literally in the room with the senior executives when the, the mantra became stay liquid and stay profitable. Um, and that for the 25 billion revenue company at the time, it's a pretty big come down to be like, stay liquid and stay profitable. And I really got this firsthand experience of like how to lead in crisis and what and learn from the best. Tell me about it. 
What did you learn? Things that I used at Monzo when I got here, actually. So first was, there was a phrase that we used all the time, which was like, don't hunker in the bunker, which is really just more about, as a leader, you have to be visible in times of stress and strain. Everybody in the company is like paralyzed in fear and scared. And the thing you owe them is to be visible and to be talking to them because that's leadership at that moment in time. The second was helping people focus on what they could control. So it's really easy at that time to catastrophize and think about all the things that are going on that you actually don't have any control over. And so getting people to focus on is both empowering and calming to be like, these are the things that I can drive forward. These things are within my control. And therefore, if I do these things, this is my contribution to the greater good. And the final thing was really getting people, we talked about all the time, focus on your customers and your colleagues. Like how you show up now is who you are and is who you are as a company. And so really making sure that we weren't making short-sighted decisions for people and for customers and those three lessons always stay with me. How did you find the courage to lead during the financial crisis when it seemed like the world was going to end? Well, the people I was around, one of the, leader, the couple of leaders I was around had been there during 9-11 mm. when actually the Amex buildings had gone down and employees had died. So they had seen crisis before. So I also had a, a, some really confident people around me that helped bolster me, but also Honestly, just I think it's just my nature. I'm not really a worrier. I like to build plans and I like to chart clear paths. And whether that's in a time of crisis, obviously I prefer the time of growth and thriving, but either one of those is deeply satisfying for me because the impact you can have on the people around you is immeasurable. What are some of the negative sides of leadership or examples where you thought that doesn't necessarily suit how I would like to work? Yeah. So I saw some leaders actually shy away from their teams and get really inward and, and retrench to their very clear deputies and be like sitting in offices together, running numbers and like endlessly strategizing and leaving their employees out without the guidance and the, and the tethering that they needed. I saw some finger pointing, which I didn't love, because ultimately, once you're in it, how you got there is irrelevant, really. You should always do the learnings later, but you're there, and, and the path forward is important. And the third one was short-sighted thinking, not even having the nod to what are the implications if we do this with our customer, if we cut this credit line, what is the implication for the longer-term relationship, and what's the right balance to have? I guess the last one was not being transparent. I think nobody needs to know everything, right? And actually, there's power in allowing people to focus on what they can control. But not being honest is a line that I would not ever want to cross. Tell me about your final act at American Express and when you decided to move on. So my last job at Amex was the commercial GM for Europe. So you got to lead. And it was super fun. I had done like every one of the functions and then I was leading the whole thing and it was really bringing it together. And we were in a growth time. I felt really proud of what I'd been able to drive. We'd achieved some really big goals for the company. And most importantly, although the job was great, the two things that I felt the most proud of was there was a lot of talent that I got to uncover and develop on my watch that are still thriving there today, which gives me lots of joy. Made you feel good. Yeah. yeah. And the second part about that was I spent a lot of time on diversity in Europe and gender diversity specifically, because although the company was really committed to it, Europe didn't have the same um, results as the rest of the company. And so I think the thing I was probably most proud of was bringing some of my male peers along with me to really work hard to try to get to parity at the kind of VP level and really pipeline like the right talent in the company. And they came along to their credit. But I think that was probably the other thing that I was most proud of before I left. 
So Tom, founder of Monzo, yeah. came to American Express. He did. He came for a presentation. And I was with the kind of global exec team. We'd done a little dog and pony show of some of the fintechs in Europe as they'd come to Europe. And he was exceptionally articulate and was really clear on the mission that he was on. And he stood out very clearly from all the other fintech CEOs in terms of knowing what he was trying to do for customers and what this company was about. And that kind of caught my eye. But then I didn't talk to Monzo for months afterwards. I got a phone call. I had done a, I had been thinking about moving over to the disruptive side of the business as opposed to the incumbent side of the business. And I pulled out my handy slide trick again and started to create the map of what that could look like. And Monzo was in a specific vertical and I got this call. And so I was interested and I went and talked to them. And I got interested for three reasons. The first was the role itself. I felt like there was a lot of breadth to the role and it was back to that idea that I could make impact, but there was clear learning for me in that process. I had gotten to the point of the MS at 16 years where although I I love the job and I love the people and I had friends like family, my learning curve had started to slow dramatically. I, I felt like I knew too many answers to the test and that's just not a healthy space for me generally. And so this was a great example of being able to now turbocharge my learning again to be in a place where the engineers are the business people, where tech is at the heart of the business. But also, I felt like there was things I could contribute that would help the company. And so that was a nice balance. That was the first thing. The second thing was the talent. So I had a number of conversations and I just kept meeting people that I just generally was like, I, I would like working with you and you're smart and I could learn from you and I could help, but I think I could learn from each of you, whatever level they were at. The third piece was I met with one of the seed investors, Eileen from Passion Capital at the time, and she just very transparently told me everything that was wrong. And she was like, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And it was the smartest thing to do because my head started going into solution mindset where I was like, oh, but we could fix that. And that's interesting. I wonder if we could do And so it just hooked me. But the Fourth reason for the company was because actually I did really think there was a value. I, I wasn't going to leave a culture where I felt like I could be myself every day and turn up and be authentic and thrive to go be somewhere where I was fighting against the grain or like trying to get my face, you know, my, my voice heard or like trying to be the lightning rod for diversity or whatever. So I, I felt like there was a real commitment here. And then the last thing really was that... Um, I'd gone, I, I was at a company where I did love the brand and it was really customer centric, continues to be, and customers love the brand. And I loved the idea that everything was built around building experiences for customers. And I started to bump into people that I didn't know or knew that were Monzo customers and they had some version of that crazy passion. They would just wax poetic for 10 minutes to me about how much the company meant to them and how much they loved the brand. And I was like, this is your bank. I don't get it. Why do you care so much? And that super intrigued me. And I was like, okay. And then I really tried to reverse engineer that. Okay, what is it about the brand? What is the five tactics they've done? And I couldn't reverse engineer it. And then I was like, okay, so if I can't do that, then it's a moat because it's something deep in the heart of this company that you can't replicate easily. So those are the reasons. You deliberated over the decision for a while. Yeah, it took a while. <laughs> because all those things took a while to yeah, pile to, up. To yeah, and I wasn't out. running away. I had a, a really good trajectory and opportunity at Amex, so I, I didn't need to go anywhere. Um, but it was very thoughtful decision-making, yeah. which I think is really important. And then when you did finally get here, all of the things that Eileen said, I imagine were true. Yeah, it and, is. <laughs> and it was basically back to crisis mode. So tell me about some of the first things that you did when you got here to effectively fix the crisis. I had a few things 
to deal with. The first was that I was completely remote. I left Amex after COVID had hit. It was the pandemic and everybody was on lockdown at home. So I literally turned my computer off in my attic at my house on PC and then turned on a Mac six weeks later and I was at Monzo. And, and that's what had changed in From my life. From incumbent yeah. to Geneva <laughs> And then I had to figure out how to <laughs> use Google Sheets <laughs> instead of Excel or whatever. <laughs> and I think the biggest early challenge was I had to connect with a lot of people I didn't know very quickly remotely. Um, so the company had done a beautiful, seamless transition remotely, but I was new and was meeting everybody in boxes on a screen. And they were all scared or anxious or angry, depending on who you were and what stakeholder you were a around the table. And each one of those required a degree of connection. And it was, I had to connect with my new boss because TS had become the CEO and I didn't know him. I had to connect with the rest of that leadership team that I didn't know. I had to connect with my new director reports. I had to connect with the broader audience that were scared and most, the average age at the time was 29. So most had never seen anything particularly difficult in the world and were like sitting in their flats trying to figure out what was happening to them. They'd been on this beautiful ride. I had to connect with regulators that wanted to know if they could trust me. And I had to connect with the investors and the board that had different concerns and make sure that I could be reliable and, and a trusted voice. So I think that was the first bit was having to really over-invest in or deeply invest in those connections and getting to know the people around me and helping them very quickly get to know me and build trust. That was probably a very big chunk of my time. The other thing though, is that back to the global financial crisis, it was the same lessons like helping the teams figure out what they could control. We very quickly had to develop, I think at the time I might've called it like the roadmap for winning. I think I called it what winning looks like. Another learning from Amex, but it was, if we do these things, here is the next six months ahead of us. If we do these things, this is winning. Just getting everybody to narrow the aperture a little bit about these steps are progress. This is forward momentum. These are the things that we have to depend on. We don't have to think about two, three years from now and the state of the world and the state of Monzo. Let's just do these things. What but, can we do today? Yeah, exactly. So what can you control? What can we each control? And what is your part in that to help you see what good looks like? And I think that was really important and aligning the executive team on that and then talking to people about it was really important. And then I think probably the rest of it was just like rapid fire learning. I had to learn what it was to be in a tech company, what the ways of working were. I had a lot of really amazing people at different levels that were helping me understand how they did their job, which helped me understand how this company could run. Those were probably the three biggest things. Once everything had stabilized and people were coming out of lockdown, the pandemic was subsiding. How do you then go into super growth mode? I don't know if there was any one moment where it was like, okay, now we're in growth mode. It was literally just every month, maybe not the first few, but every month things would just move a little ahead, move a little ahead and move a little ahead. And we did have milestones. I set goals every six months for the company. So you could start to see like how those laddered up into momentum shifts for the company. But we, we've had probably one or two times where we sat down, in fact, very recently, where we told the whole company we're bringing our targets forward a year because we can just see this amazing shift. But I'm not sure that there was like this moment where like now it's growth mode, right? Because there's always something new that you're building and we were always in this sort of forward movement stage. If I give you an example, like we're at what, eight and a half million customers now on the retail side, 300,000 businesses. If you think about the last three million Five to six million took 10 months. Six to seven million took eight months. Seven to eight million took six months. Somewhere in there, it was like, this is working. And we're not 
spending a lot of money. We're not trying to acquire customers. People are coming here because they see that the, that they love this business and what we're building. So something about those proof points and showing them to people, I think, allows them to believe and then think ahead to what the next thing is. In your role as Chief Operating Officer, how do you think about the range of departments that you look after in every company? Yeah. Um, that role looks after slightly different things. How do you do it here? So I call my role, it's like all things customer. So what I lead technically is customer operations and servicing, fraud and fin crimes, so anything to do with the friction of how customers pay or how, how we support them. But I also lead marketing and design and user research, so the other side of the customer, and then the people team, which is the internal customer. So that's how I think about it, is I just lead the customer. Um, it's really interesting because up until now, everything we've talked about has been quite finance, like quite <laughs> functional focus. But here you're actually doing what I would see as more creative people, human, <laughs> yeah. dare I say, tasks. Has that always been part of the roles that you've taken on? Yeah, I think that's just who I am. But like I said, early on in my career, I wanted to be a writer. So I've always cared about that. I've always worked in a really customer-centric company. And I've run marketing and, and data teams and a whole bunch of other stuff in other iterations of my life. I think you can always be customer-centric no matter what function you're in, um, in any company. So if, if you are in finance, you can be incredibly customer-centric. If you're in risk, you can be incredibly customer-centric. And I just try to make sure here that everybody is that way. But I think it is also fair to say that I definitely get my joy out of the creative side. I'm a Monzo customer, have been for a very long time, and I definitely see a lot of product expansion going on. Yeah. What is your strategy around how to improve the product while also not getting that dreaded product bloat and overwhelming customers? Oh, that's such a good question. Look, the strategy is is that every aspect of your financial life should be available to you in your Monzo app, right? But it is 100% true that the trick of that, and, and that within each part of that, the Monzo magic makes it better than you could have ever imagined that it would be, right? And so that's the first bar, is that everything that we ship should have that Monzo magic in it. It should be the things that delight you. It is the things that have always pulled you down or worn you down with your engagement with banking, whether you're dealing with investments or pensions or home ownership or your current account. Like our job is to take those barriers away and make it as frictionless as possible so that you can get to the meat of what, what works for you. The other part of it should be that every, the more everybody you know is in Monzo, the better your life is, right? And whether you can Monzo me something, whether you can have greater visibility, whether you can do shared tabs. And so that idea of taking the other friction out of your life that sometimes is created not by finance, but by the category. So those things are really critical for us to do just to make sure that the feel-good factor is there and that you really want to engage with us and that and we make this the most engaging experience you can have. But it can't be a department store where you walk in and it's just like a whole bunch of shelf space there, right? And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the design of our app. You might have seen that we actually recently shipped a new overview tab for our app and that will continue to grow because... Our joy and the work that the promise we should make for our customers is that we get to curate and simplify so that the cognitive load goes away and what they're really focused on is their own financial momentum and progress. And so that's the bar. It's really high. Most people haven't managed to achieve it and we're probably only 25% of the way there ourselves, but that's what we're all aiming for. I like what you said there about when your friends are on Monzo, it gets better. Mm -hmm. How do you see the role between finance and social products developing over the next decade? 
Look, I think finance is just a critical aspect of your life and trying to create that separation is naive, right? Because actually your financial lifeline is like the connection of your heart and your mind to the rest of your life. And so creating fake barriers where your social life, your connections with people, your connections with the world are not part of that experience seems short-sighted. And that's why you see it in every aspect of how we engage in our app. Um, We know that's a a clear part of how um, customers need to engage this part of the world, whether they're caring for an elder or helping their children manage their money or transferring money or going on joint vacations or saving for something or sending someone a present. Those are all things that are connections. It's less about money and it's more about people. And so that is like the heart of our product development and the way we think about our product. It's also how we deal with our customers. If you think about our very unique tone on social, we're in conversations with people. We're not just out there blasting out things that we think are important for the world. We're having real dialogues um, inside and outside of the company. So I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know what 10 years will look like yet, but I think that we have the DNA and that connection to a customer to make sure that our product always feels super relevant and feels really connected to everybody's overall life, not just their financial one. You have incredible diversity and gender parity stats here at Monzo. How do we get more women into fintech? I think there's two ways. So there's lots of paths into the companies that are in fintech, but fintech is regulated. So there's not just the engineers that are in fintech, there's also people with banking backgrounds, people with risk backgrounds, people with marketing backgrounds. There's lots of different roles that you can do in a fintech that are not just about have you learned to code. So that's the first thing. And I think we really embrace having gender diversity across all of those roles. But then when you double down into actually the tech part of fintech, though it's harder, right? It's harder in data and engineering because just in the environment externally, there's fewer women in that field. So the pool is smaller. And so you have to work really hard both to early on engage with people to make sure they're not dropping out of this career. We do stuff like we work with a company called Black Coding Females just to be able to make sure that we are creating the right connections to help people see what that career pathway could look like. And then they need to see that when they get there, that there are role models and there are people that actually show that this could work. You talked about our stats. I think we're 44% board and exco women. If you look at our board, all of our key committees are are chaired by women. We're 28% people of color. That's important because people need role models. But then you also need to do the hard yards all the way through so that you're creating the right inclusive environment so people feel like they're belonging. I do believe in setting targets for companies because I think what gets measured gets done. And it shows that value. So you need that. And we've seen steady progress, as you mentioned, across the board as a result. And then you have to get creative, which is like, how do you get out there and expand the pie? not just compete over the same slice of the pie across the ecosystem. That takes more than one company. That takes an entire commitment across the industry. But I think there's a lot of people that are committed to it. My final question is, what advice would you give to a grad who's about to start at Monzo and somehow wants to be here for the next 16 years? Talk to customers. Get them deep in your DNA. Show your leaders and the people around you that you understand what their problems are. Um, Obsess about solving those problems. Um, Do great work. (laughs) Good work. (laughs) Great work. Be committed. Um, Be curious. Be kind. Work with people. Those those are the first right steps. Thank you so much. This has been a brilliant conversation. You're incredible. 
Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download The Stack World app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.